snow, wind, all of these things that can really foul up your your passing game, they happen. And they happen in places where quarterfinal games are being played. So, yeah, I mean, elements at this time of the season, they come into play. Uh, you know, being able to being able to run matters a lot. That's I mean, pounding the rock works because sometimes you can't sling it all over the place when it's gusting 25 and 30 miles an hour. What you said about places where quarterfinal games are being played reminds me that, hey, if we had Whitewater at seven and North Central at noon, someone could see both of those games. You could. Physically be in both locations, not just watch the entirety of them online. I volunteer as tribute. Clock winds, snap to Hawkins, last play of the game, lobs it for Schmicky, he makes the catch, yes! Touchdown, Central, final play of the game, Tanner Schmicky, touchdown! Petroselli weaves his way to the goal line and dives, and a touchdown, Mount Union. Second touchdown of the game for Petroselli. Bree Sagala looking, going across the middle of the field. And that ball is intercepted. And let's see. It is RPI football. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Get a little excited. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Greg Thomas. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, the weekly podcast about the largest division of college football. We welcome you to podcast number 296, season 15, episode 19, the podcast for November 29th of 2021. I'm Pat Coleman, the executive editor of D3Football.com, host of like 296 of these podcast episodes. I'm Greg Thomas. I write Around the Nation, the column. I have co-hosted for much fewer than 296 episodes. But Pat, you know, the second round of the playoffs is always a feast of top 25 matchups, but the 2021 second round elevated that regular feast. The turkey was perfectly moist, the potatoes extra buttery, somebody made the stuffing with the sausage. It was a lot of what we're used to, only just a little bit better. Mmm, feast. Yeah, 16 teams got to have Thanksgiving together. You know, this is uh, this is what teams live for, right? The opportunity to still be playing on Thanksgiving weekend. It starts perhaps in high school. Sometimes that's when you have your big rivalry game is on Thanksgiving weekend, sometimes even on Thanksgiving Day. In this case, you're a team who played this past weekend. You got to have Thanksgiving together as a group. Then maybe some of you got on a plane. Maybe some of you went back home, came back, had your game on Saturday. But... We had a great day of games on Saturday, in my opinion. Uh, the two best finishes, or two of the three best finishes of the day, come down, you know, 90 seconds apart from each other. And the the final play of the day is a game-winning touchdown pass. Yes, and, a, and an extra point that they had to come out and snap. That's a thing that actually happened. But, you know, just, Greg, the way that the, those things came down, right? It's Linfield covering the onside kick and uh, uh, ending that game at St. John's. Central coming down to the final moments. Earlier in the day, watching the excitement just on Twitter from fans uh, where Johns Hopkins was leading at Mount Union. Not necessarily Johns Hopkins fans, just people who are happy when Mount Union loses, um, who are prematurely celebrating, are uh, the closeness of the North Central game, uh, which was 20 to nothing. And then it was very much not 20 to nothing. Uh, RPI holding off Cortland. 
um, you know, waiting to see if Delaware Valley would ever score, that sort of thing. It was a, a pretty interesting Saturday. It really was. And we, we sort of had an idea that this was going to be a pretty special Saturday with the matchups that we had coming in. Round one, we didn't really have any major upsets, and those matchups for round two paid off, and they delivered all afternoon, really. Great games up and down the board, except for a couple where maybe we thought they wouldn't be as good. Those those were as expected as well. We're going to talk more about that in our uh, quick hits recap. Right. Uh, we will. Uh, yeah, we'll remind people how our picks were. Greg and I were really happy to tell you about our picks in week one of the playoffs and how well we did. And uh, Ryan Tips is going to be very happy for us to tell you about the picks in week two. But uh, we'll come back to that in uh, just a little minute. Also coming up a little bit uh, later, uh, our tight five expands out in the playoffs and we'll be talking with Ralph Isernia. He's the head coach at RPI. I don't know if RPI is the most unexpected quarterfinalist. RPI is the lowest ranked quarterfinalist, uh, the number 18 team in the country. They got past number 13 Cortland on Saturday. A lot of stuff going on around the RPI program, some of which we've written about and we'll revisit with coach Isernia in just a moment. And of course, we'll talk about the things that they are doing as they take on North Central coming up this Saturday. Uh, and also, we're going to run down all the way through all the brackets. We will hand out game balls. We're going to bring back an old category that people haven't heard since 2019. Your categories have become tiresome. So keep an eye out for that. More in just a moment. And our ability to bring back old categories really relies on the folks who are our Patreon subscribers. No, I mean, that's not true necessarily. We could just pull out old stuff out of the archive whenever we wanted, but the ability to create new content is something that uh, is supported by people who support D3sports.com, support D3football.com, either by going to patreon.com slash D3sports or going to D3sports.com slash help, and we have been uh, the beneficiary of some very kind donations in both of those directions, uh, including over the past several weeks. Certainly, Patreon subscribers helping us get all of that good playoff content, getting us through the regular season, getting us through the time where we didn't have football. Patreon subscribers also helping all of the D3sports.com family right now. Hoops in full swing. Our, our, our team of D3 hoopsters, Dave McHugh, Gordon Mann, and Ryan Scott doing their thing over at D3hoops.com. Read about some uh, interesting top 25 activity tonight over on, D, over on D3hoops.com. And that's all possible because of our Patreon subscribers. Thank you all so much. Right. Uh, just tonight, uh, the uh, number one team in Division Three men's basketball lost in overtime at Christopher Newport. So that's a Randolph-Macon losing by one in overtime and a new poll being voted on as you guys, not only as we're recording this, but probably if you guys listen to it on Monday as well. So keep an eye out to see who the new number one team will be on Monday, or maybe it will be the same one. Anyway, all of these things happen because of the folks who subscribe and uh, donate a regular steady amount of money via Patreon. You can do that by going to patreon.com slash d3sports or a one-time donation is also helpful as well at d3sports.com slash help. Type 5 here in the D3 Football Podcast. Ralph Isernia, head coach at RPI. His team in the quarterfinals victorious up at Cortland on Saturday. Coach, first of all, congratulations on the win and two wins on the road. I mean, those are those are tough to get in the tournament. Well, thanks, Pat. Thanks uh, for having me on. And, and uh, I guess we're doing something right if we're, we're on the show uh, this late in the year. So um, 
Yeah, uh, going on the road uh, two weeks in the playoffs. Really, for, for our guys, for our team, we've been playing playoff games uh, basically for the last uh, five weeks or so. Um, you know, right after our loss to uh, Hobart, knowing that, um, you know, one more loss would uh, would send us home out of the playoffs, out of the Liberty League uh, hunt. So um, our guys have uh, responded to that, and um, it's been uh, – Really, our, our saying is 0-0 and 1 to go. So it's, the, you know, it's on to the next game and, and uh, you know, not looking back, but looking forward. Playoff games for you guys, such as, you know, surviving a two-point attempt up at St. Lawrence, um, the crazy way in which you guys won the shoes uh, and won that game. I mean, we love to see the drama. We love to watch the drama unfold. How does that uh, wear on the guys? Yeah, uh, when I started the season, I think my hair was black. Um, there's, uh, there's certainly a ton of gray in it. Um, you know, I, I think it speaks well to the character of our team, uh, the uh, the character of our organization, the type of guys that we have, our, our culture, what we've built here, uh, where our guys are, are continuing to play the next play and playing as hard as they possibly can. And uh, there's not a situation where... Um, you know, they're going to, you know, feel that they're out of a game. and They'll just keep fighting and finding a way to uh, to win. So, you know, obviously, if, um, uh, you know, for, for my heart, uh, you know, if we could uh, if we could win games by, uh, you know, by a couple of scores, that would certainly be good. But um, I think it's it's like I said before, it speaks to what our guys are all about. And, you know, we've been through so much uh, through the pandemic, through being locked out, through, uh, you know, having to find places to lift and places to uh, to practice and and guys were doing all that stuff on their own and for over you know 650 days we weren't together so for those guys to to be in this situation uh, right now where we are uh, I think it's a testament to to the great character and great leadership that we have on our team for the listeners out there we wrote a story about this uh, several weeks ago we'll put a link in the show notes because it's uh, I think still worth revisiting what RPI had to go through just to you know put a team on the field this year and coach I mean obviously there's been a lot of talk too about you know not having your fans at your home games and that sort of thing and then we talked quite a bit about you guys not having a home game in the first round how have the guys responded to getting sent on the road for that first round game and then you know kind of extending it out now here into the quarterfinals well, I think I think initially it was one of those things that um, you know I, I think going through the Liberty League gauntlet uh, that we had to go through, uh, the number of ranked teams that we had beaten throughout the course of the year, uh, certainly it was something that uh, you know we were expecting a home game, but that's not what happened. Uh, we were expecting to have fans in the stands. That did not happen. Um, you know, so it's just one of those things. Hey, we can't control it. They're going to send us on the road, so we're going to go on the road to, to Endicott and we're going to play them there. So. Um, it, that was that was out of our control. Someone else made that decision, and uh, you know we were going to live with it and, and move on because there was nothing we could do about it. Turning your attention ahead to what's coming up this week, defending national champs in North Central, another long road trip. I mean, this is a program. The RPA program has been at this level before, and you know is now working its way back to this level. What does preparation look like? What have you seen on film? What do you see from North Central? Well, it's just been uh, it, it's early looking into the the film on North Central and uh, you know trying to get breakdowns and stuff like that. But uh, it's uh, it, it's uh, very apparent quickly when you turn on the film uh, why they're such a good team. They're well coached. They got great players. Uh, they're always in the right position. Um, they they make plays and uh, you know they're they're number one uh, for a reason. Uh, and they are they are exactly as advertised. So not uh, not any uh, glaring weaknesses that we can find, especially this early on. And just tell us a little bit about the the guys, especially you know we've 
I think like George Marinopoulos' name has been, uh, we have known this guy for like four or five, six, seven years. It sure seems like, right? He's a guy who's now a grad student, had a, you know, been around for a long time. Tell us a little bit about him as a, as a person, as a leader, and as a quarterback. Yeah, uh, George was a, was a guy that uh, we recruited out of Gilderland High School, so a local, local product here. Um, had a chance to, to watch him in high school, play football, play basketball, really good athlete. Um, and, uh, you know, he came here to RPI about midway through his freshman year. We put him in as starting quarterback uh, and he led us uh, to the Liberty League championship and into the playoffs uh, against Wesley. Uh, that was in 2017, 2018. We followed that up with an elite eight appearance uh, um, and then going down to Baltimore and playing Johns Hopkins down there. So, um, you know, the 2019 season was not exactly, um, you know, how he wanted to finish. Uh, and uh, he had a chance to come back for his super senior year. Now, George was a guy that had could have graduated from RPI in three years. Okay. Could have graduated gotcha. from RPI in three wow. years um, and uh, decided to put off, um, you know, his career and come back for graduate school. Uh, could have graduated uh, out of graduate school in four years. Uh, but decided to use this last semester to finish out the on, on the football field with his team. Um, I I think you know you, you speak to the character of, of of George and who he is and, and what he's all about, and he's all about the team. He's a he's a great teammate. Um, lifts the other guys up. He is phenomenal in the film room. Um, he's a, he's a film junkie, uh, and um, you know he's a guy that uh, that can get things right on the field for us. He you know if we're in a a little bit tough situation. He can change the protection. He can change the play. Um, he has that uh, that ability and, uh, you know, just great field awareness. You know, he's an academic All-American uh, and, um, you know, we're looking for, for maybe that same thing coming up this year. A ton of playoff experience and uh, a guy that we uh, we hang our hat on. And what I'm hearing is that he's a guy who could be out there making like $90,000 right now. And instead he is still paying money to play division three football. That, that's yeah, that's right. And uh, he's one of 19. We now have 19 super seniors uh, that are, that have come back for their, their fifth year. And 15 of them are in grad school here at, at RPI. It, it's not an inexpensive education, uh, but uh, you know, they're looking at six figure salaries when they're, when, when they graduate. So that's a, uh, that's a nice thing to, uh, to have as a fallback plan. You know, through two rounds, George Marinopoulos has been uh, 33 to 45 passing for 320 yards, five touchdowns and just one interception. He's been very efficient and he's playing virtually mistake-free football, which as we'll see throughout the quarterfinal recaps that we're going to do is sort of step one in giving your team a chance to win. As a veteran guy, you know, I certainly mentioned, you know, he's basically been starter since midway through his freshman year of 2017. This is a guy who is going to graduate with a master's from one of the elite engineering institutions on the planet. And I don't know what you make, Greg, on a regular basis, but I've been, um, you know, I've been out of college for about 27 years, and I know that George is going to come out and probably immediately make more money than I've ever made in my lifetime. Probably so, if I can trust Ralph Isernia and his and his uh, estimation. You know, George Marinopoulos really playoffs in 2017 as a as a first year starter. Quarterfinals in 2018, not so much in 2019. Back to the quarterfinals here in 2021. That's a pretty short list of of players that are going to have that kind of 
playoff resume and that um, that amount of experience in the playoffs. Yeah, we'll see what uh, how that looks uh, to our all region voters coming up over the course of the next week or so. Uh, that will be very interesting because he wasn't the first team all Liberty League quarterback. And so that'll be interesting to see how our voters deal with that postseason play certainly can help someone elevate over what the all conference team decided to come up with. Let's just put it that way. Game ball. Game ball. Game balls. Game balls. Game balls. It's time for game balls. And my game ball is going to North Central running back Ethan Greenfield. His 198 yards were not a season high, but close enough. There's a big difference between running for 198 on UW lacrosse in the playoffs and running for 199 on Illinois Wesleyan, a team which finished 3-7. and seven. Greenfield got the team off and running with uh, 33 rushing yards on the Cardinals' first possession, scored the first touchdown on first and goal from the 7. He made three tacklers miss. He carried a fourth into the end zone, and that really set the tone for the day for the Cardinals on the ground. I don't know if you've heard me say this already in this podcast. You have to be able to run the ball as the weather gets worse, and Greenfield is doing the job for North Central, and that is why he gets my game ball. My game ball is going to Rensselaer. Pronunciation 101. Univistic. Monon Belt. Univistic. Gallardi. Muhlenberg. Kane. Rensselaer. Senior running back Dylan Burnett. Burnett carried the ball 32 times for a career-high 155 yards, surpassing his previous career-high of 124 yards set last week against Endicott. Burnett got the call in this game to control the clock and keep the Cortland offense on the sidelines. And he did his job masterfully with modest three and five yard gains all afternoon. In the fourth quarter, Burnett finally broke loose for a 42 yard touchdown run that put the engineers up 21 to seven and effectively sealed the game. The playoffs are a great time to have your best games. And Burnett is doing just that for RPI as they advance to the quarterfinal. Just looking at Saturday's games in the second round, we'll start off in the top left bracket. Linfield surviving and advancing against St. John's 31 to 28. This is a game that did not start off well for the Wildcats as St. John's got to Linfield quarterback Wyatt Smith three times on the first series of the game. Well, I think <clears throat> early on in the game, we were just getting beat. Um, St. John's defensive line, I thought was one of the, was exceptional. I mean, I knew that they were going to be good. Um, and we had a hard time uh, adjusting to their speed and physicality uh, right out of the gate. And I think that happens a lot of times in the playoffs when you, you practice against, uh, you know, scout teams or whatever, and you're trying, you know, you're banged up, you're trying not to go as hard, and then suddenly you get against a really good opponent and the speed of the game is, is quite high. It took us a while to get used to that, but I felt like once our offensive line started to uh, make adjustments and get used to that, um, you know, they gave Wyatt some time, and, and once once we got a little pass protection and a little bit of a semblance of a running game going, then we were able to move the ball a, a little bit. It's hard going. It's hard to move the ball against that defense. It's outstanding defense. And They kind of punched us in the mouth early on. I thought they were very obviously a very talented D-line. very impressed with the way they played. They're very physical. But I was very proud of our offense, our O-line. I thought they really stepped it up. We made a few adjustments, and they really, they really figured it out, and they gave me some time. And, and then after that, I think our receivers started making some plays. Our running backs ran the ball. I think we just started picking it up as the game went on, and I was very proud of the way we played. Linfield turned it over on downs at the Johnnies' 36 on that first drive, and they punted on their next four possessions. But then the Wildcats put together an 82-yard drive to get on the board, and they took advantage of a muffed punt with 24 seconds left in the first half. 
ending up with a Colton McNabb three-yard touchdown run with 13 seconds, no, 11 seconds left in the half to go into the locker room up 14-7. St. John's had a couple of big pass plays to stay in it. A 61-yarder from Chris Backus to Jimmy Buck in the third quarter. Another one from Backus to Blake Patrick with 39 seconds to play. But Linfield recovered the onside kick and ran out the clock on a big win. It's a tough way, obviously, for uh, the season to end for St. John's. Gary Foshing, the head coach, battling COVID, not able to coach his team. Jerry Hogan, the 46-year assistant coach at St. John's, also the head baseball coach, was the acting coach on Saturday, something he last did in the early 90s on some weekend where John Gallardi had broken his leg and couldn't be on the sidelines. In addition, you know, St. John's has been battling injuries throughout, but I just want to put out kudos to Chris Backus, career backup uh, at quarterback, stepping in and taking the reins. Here are his thoughts about that after the game, plus those of one of his key wide receivers, Ravi Alston. Yeah, um, you're going to make me cry. Um, it's been a fun ride. Um, came back, obviously my fifth year. Um, wanted the opportunity to be around our guys one more time. Um, you know, obviously bringing a lot of guys in, bringing Aaron in was a great win for our football team. Um, he, he's a great player. Sad to see him go down, but that's what football teams do. Next man up. Um, happened to be me as the next man. The boys, you know, trusted me. They rallied around me. The coaches trusted me. Um, it's just been fun to be a part of the team. Every role I've played, um, third string, backup, holder, you know, playing in this game, it's just been a blessing to be here at St. John's. Also, man, I want to touch on that. Like, you know, this guy right here, this is the best teammate I've ever had, man. Like, this, he's a phenomenal leader. He, uh, he motivates me every single day. Like, you know, no matter what type of position he's in, uh, he, he's, he's a big team guy. And he'll, he's willing to sacrifice himself and do whatever for this team. So having him is best backup in the nation, and, and he proved that, man. Like, just taking us this far, all the great things he's done. Like, yeah, like he said, we, we rallied around him because he's been a great leader for us. So Yeah, you know, Backus stepped in uh, as a backup after Aaron Severson comes in for St. John's this season and gets hurt early on in the season. Backus, you know, played well as a backup. I think we knew that he wasn't Jackson Erdman or Aaron Severson, but he played well as, as a backup running this Johnny's offense. And, you know, the work he did in the Mayak championship game against Bethel was really, really outstanding, particularly in that fourth quarter in that last touchdown drive that gave them the Mayak championship, you know, a lot of, a lot of respect, obviously there from Ravi Alston to Chris Backus and everything that he's put in to the program. And, like you said, just a lot of a lot of injuries for St. John's, a lot of uh, adversity to overcome. And, you know, Linfield was just, you know, just three points better on this afternoon. The question, I think, for Linfield going forward, and we'll talk a little bit about this, um, you know, when we talk about the matchup between them and Mary Harden Baylor, uh, you know, is just offense. They've got some real young wide receivers. There's a bunch of talent. Uh, Joel Valadez uh, caught 13 passes for 102 yards and two touchdowns. I love that the new stat program that almost everybody's using in Division Three includes yards after contact um, or, or yards after the catch, I should say. And, you know, that's 46 of his 102 came after he caught the ball. Connor McNabb, uh, you know, got a bunch of dump offs out of the backfield. He had eight catches for 64 yards, 56 of them after uh, after he, he made those catches, Wyatt Smith worked really hard to try to get the ball to his brother, the freshman wide receiver, Colton Smith, but was more or less unable to do so. There, There's enough of those guys that they can spread it around to that generally one of those guys is going to be able to be open, is going to be, you know, someone who's going to be the hot hand 
on that particular day. But I think that was one of the big questions and maybe why Linfield took a little bit uh, of uh, extra time to get started on Saturday. Not just because Wyatt Smith had guys in big red jerseys in his face for the first uh, four snaps of the game, but also because, you know, just trying to find out who that receiver was going to be on that particular day. That's right. And it's not going to get easier next week uh, for Wyatt Smith because down in Belton, Texas, Mary Harden Baylor dispatched Birmingham Southern comfortably by a score of 42 to 7. Birmingham Southern answered the crew's opening quarter score with a DJ Albright kick return for a touchdown, but the Panthers were just unable to generate any meaningful offense in this game as the Crusader defense is in their typical elite playoff form. Uh, BSC converted just two third downs. They converted a third and one and a third and three, and those were both in the first half. They did not convert a a third down in the second half of the game. Offensively, the Crusaders found more success than they did in round one versus the SAA champions. Ryan Redding filled in at quarterback and played well. Pete Fredenberg may have a difficult decision to make next week about his quarterback and going forward through the tournament. Uh, Jefferson Fritz had a key interception deep in Birmingham Southern Territory to set up a short touchdown. And Pete Smith led a dominant effort by the Crusader defensive line with two sacks and a pass breakup. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor, they have not surrendered an offensive touchdown so far in these playoffs against two pretty good offensive teams. And I do think the degree of difficulty gets raised a bit this week as Linfield comes down to Belton. It often seems that uh, Pete Frettenberg isn't happy unless he has two quarterbacks. Is that how it seems to you? It, it seems that it seems it has to be that way. I thought we, we were really excited about Mary Harden Baylor. They had those five spring games and Kyle King did really well and looked like he really cemented himself as a clear number one starter and we weren't going to see Mary Harden Baylor sort of rotate guys around for seven or eight or nine weeks. And now Kyle King has had, you know, a foot thing and didn't play this week and Ryan Redding has come in and done really well. And now we're back to, you know, I don't want to say controversy, but sort of quarterback musical chairs here for UMHB, but that tends to be their happy zone. Like maybe this is, maybe this is where their, their comfort space right now. And for Linfield, it is another trip to Mary Harden Baylor. Joe Smith, the Wildcats head coach, put it pretty succinctly after the game about the enormity of what they face in this bracket. Gratified, I guess, to, to have played such a great opponent and, and to come all the way out here and win on the road. It's extremely difficult to win on the road. It's hard to win in the playoffs, period. It's extremely hard to win on the road in the playoffs unless you're in the East bracket. But if you're in the West bracket, uh, it's exceptionally hard to win on the road. I mean, he's not wrong, right? It just you don't usually hear coaches say that. And, and I was surprised that that was almost the first thing that he said on Saturday. It is. But also, like, you're not you're not new to this, right? You know where you know where your school is located and you know the teams that are closest to you are very good. And those are the teams that you're going to have to go through. You know, I think it's I, maybe maybe you throw the shot in there, but. Also, just I go play. Just go play. As looking forward to, you know, that game, some of the other keys to that game, you know, um, Wyatt Smith talked about the needing to adjust to the speed of that game being played at a higher level than some of the games that they've played, whether it's Northwest Conference play or, you know, uh, non-conference games or playoff games against Redlands. I'm not sure the speed of the game. It depends much uh, whether it's September or November against Redlands. St. John's, much quicker up front. Mary Harden Baylor, as we've known from the past, is likely to be even quicker than that. Um, and so how long does that take to adjust, I think, is a big question for me. We talked about the receivers as well. Um, gosh, you know, who quarterbacks for Mary Harden Baylor? 
how well does Mary Hard Baylor run on Linfield? Linfield held St. John's to about 70 yards rushing. Can Linfield avoid giving up those those big plays? I mean, two big, long touchdowns. Guys who got past the Linfield secondary on Saturday uh, made this game closer than it needed to be and put, put it in a position where St. John's could have an onside kick at the end and perhaps pull a little magic out of their bag. Yeah, you know, Mary Harden Baylor has guys that can run deep and run past secondaries, but will they take those shots? They don't They don't always take big risks as the playoff rounds go by. And if Kenneth Cormier and Afonso Thomas can run as well as they did against Birmingham Southern, they may not have to throw it deep. Uh, you know, for Linfield, maybe now is the time that you put it on Wyatt Smith to be really great for 45 or 50 throws or more. If there's ever a time to lean on your fifth-year senior quarterback, I think a regional final in Belton is probably probably time to do that. Smith on Saturday, 28-40 passing for 273 yards and the three touchdowns. No interceptions. He was sacked three times. Connor McNabb got 17 carries out of the backfield for Linfield uh, for a total of 73 yards. They gave a handful of carries to Connor Morton as well. Bottom left bracket, you've got Central advancing with a touchdown with no time left on the clock. I like to use that instead of saying the last play of the game because it's true, and that way we have to we can just get past all the other things, right? We also have UW Whitewater making it look easy against DePaul, so focusing a little bit more on the Wheaton Central game. Central won that one 30 to 28. You heard the highlight back in the open of the podcast, and also if you're one of those people that thinks that Jeff Herbers was not in bounds on his fourth quarter touchdown, that was the second to last touchdown for Central. I, I've seen the photos that show the, the official made the right call. Hey, you know, the official's right on top of it. And you and I are watching from probably hundreds or thousands of miles away on a single uh, camera from the press box with people standing on the sidelines in the way. That is absolutely a catch. Anyway, here's Jeff McMartin with more on this game. You know, really, you have to give our kids a lot of credit. I mean, uh, you know, Hunter said that he thought they played pretty well. I thought our, I thought our defense played great. I mean, they, that was a great game to, to stop that offense. I mean, that's a high-powered offense. Um, you know, every film we watch, I mean, you, 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 look at, you look at them across the board offensively. Their O-line, their running back is special. The, te- the, the quarterback is extremely good. Uh, a seasoned, you know, fifth-year guy. Uh, their receivers are very, very fast. They got a big tight end. I mean, he's a mismatch against anybody. Uh, so to stop that offense, slow it down the way they did, especially at halftime. I mean, it's 14-7, and I'm like, this is perfect. I mean, it's for for what we were able to to do, and and some of the things we weren't able to do, the mistakes that we made, to be at that situation at halftime is kind of right where we wanted to be. And so I, I give them a lot of credit. And offensively, I mean, um, you know, I, I think our guys uh, just did an awesome job of continuing to execute. You know, we're built for this. You know, this is, uh, you know, uh, we're a fast-paced football team. Coach Myeri's game plan uh, worked, I thought, to perfection because we really wanted to kind of just stay in the game and keep wearing on people. And, and, uh, and it's like a, it's like a, it's like a boxing uh, match. You know, you just you keep you keep giving body blows, and eventually they'll start to. They start to pay off, and, and uh, we saw that today. And, and then I also think our special teams, I mean, you know, our kicking game was really, really good. We, we punted well when we had to punt. Uh, we flipped the field a number of times. Um, we made a key field goal into the win. That was a tough kick, too. And um, So I, I give a lot of credit. I mean, our coaching staff did a great job. They, they uh, put these guys in great positions, and these guys went out and executed. 
Jeff talks about the kicking game. There's a field goal into the wind. There's the punting. Uh, kicking game did not work out so well for Wheaton. They had one punt in the fourth quarter that went about 25 yards that set up a score for Central, and that was hardly the only problem they had. Yeah, I know. Tough punting day all around for Wheaton. They had three first quarter punts that went 23, 18, and 17 yards. The Thunder really were fortunate to not have been down something like 21 to zero in that first quarter with the field position that Central had and the way the Dutch were moving the ball early in the game. Losing Eric Kanak, who went out of the game early with an injury, wide receiver for Central is a big deal. I mean, Central also lost Logan Mont back in week one. He caught 14 passes and two touchdowns before getting injured. And as of a few weeks ago, he was still in a wheelchair on the sidelines. But it was a huge day for Tanner Schminke. Here's his take on that game-winning touchdown. Uh, it's just a simple corner route. Uh, we had a little free play there. Uh, right before it, and 16, he uh, knew I was going to go inside, so I gave him a little fake inside and then just went right back out and lost him. That catch, of course, and then some confusion as people realized that Central did have to line up and actually snap the extra point attempt in order to finish the game, finished off Central's 30-28 to win. You know, this was the game of the round, and if it isn't the game of the tournament, we, we will have been spoiled. Uh, Jeff McMartin said he was happy with the 14-7 to score at halftime, I'm going to go one step further, and I think he would have signed up in advance for his team to have the ball down four points with two minutes and 37 seconds left to play and 63 yards to go. Not only the final pass to Schminke to win it, but Blaine Hawkins converted two fourth downs on that final drive. On the first one, Hawkins slipped out of the pocket as it collapsed. He somehow didn't have a knee hit. Don't know how that happened. Still, I've watched it 100 times. He escaped to the right sideline, threw back across his body, which is a no-no, and he found Schminke for the uh, fourth down conversion. Then on fourth and 10, with 14 seconds left to play, again, he escaped a collapsing pocket. He had great field awareness, he throw, uh, throwing the pass to Jason Hopp just before Hawkins crossed the line of scrimmage. These were two incredible individual plays by Hawkins. I don't know if we do Gallardi moments around here, but if we do, that final drive qualifies. Yeah, that's for sure. It's exactly what you want to see out of a league quarterback in a playoff game, right? 41 to 65 passing for 434 yards, four touchdowns, two interceptions. And you mentioned Jason Hopp. That's a guy who's a, a running back for Central. I mean, he only got four carries on Saturday. He caught the ball more than he more than he carried it, but they got him involved in the offense. And I mentioned Jeff Herbers, uh, 16 catches for 163 yards. Schminke, 13 for 151. These are almost video game numbers against one of the elite defenses in Division Three, and yet showed that eliteness by holding Central to 30 points and only 442 yards of total offense rather than six or 700. Yes, really a Leonine effort by Blaine Hawkins, which is a tremendous on-the-spot callback for the ATN diehards out there. On the other side of the bracket, another easy game for UW-Whitewater as the Warhawks rolled past DePauw 45-0. On offense, this game is all Alex Pete, 209 yards, four touchdowns, and just 14 carries. And on defense, it's hard to get better than pitching a shutout. So here's Mackenzie Balganayi to talk a little bit more about the defensive performance for the Warhawks. Oh, just, uh, you know, go fast in, uh, in the pa in, you know, password scheme. Just have a predetermined move. We know before coming into the game, they were... An experienced unit. They worked well together, so we just had to play to our strengths, and that's just you know, uh, relentless effort and just you know having that predetermined move in your mind, uh, just just going as fast as you can. It's hard to fail when you do that. It was his line mate Nico Lemke who probably had the biggest day up front for the Warhawks. At four tackles for loss, two and a half sacks, 
Fellow lineman Kyle Gallagher, also two sacks as the Warhawks ended up with nine sacks on the day. And that's going to lead us into talking about the game between Central and Whitewater, a game in which the Rhinos are going to get tested and the UW-Whitewater secondary is going to get tested. I don't know if the Whitewater secondary has a, a name that they like to call themselves. Um, and, you know, is maybe Central will have to run for more than eight yards in order to advance. Uh, maybe. Uh, you know, for DePaul, uh, this is not really an un unexpected result as this was their first exposure to one of the truly elite teams in the division. Almost nobody does well against the top tier teams the first time they play them. And there's really nothing in the North coast or from their first round game in 2021 to have really even remotely prepared them for whitewater. That said, DePaul reached the second round of the playoffs for the first time in their program history. And now they have this experience as something to learn from and build toward as the Brett Dietz era really sets in there in Greencastle. So we've got a game now between an elite division three member that has, you know, had has had the bracket set up like it is like it gets set up for an elite team. And then you've got uh, Central coming in and has had faced a much more difficult road to get to this point. That's right. Whitewater has cruised through two rounds. They've dominated overmatched unranked opponents while Central has eliminated a pair of top 15 teams already. I'm not worried about Whitewater being prepared. They are not strangers to this level of competition. Central, they were able to win this weekend with just eight total rush yards, as you mentioned. I've seen some chatter on the Twitter with Keith McMillan today about Central needing to do better than that to win this weekend. But do they? Central might have the best player in the division in Blaine Hawkins. And at this stage of the season, there's no reason to take the ball out of his hands. Um, I do wonder, though, that while Whitewater was resting players for the second half against DePaul and uh, Greenville in the first round, Central was losing key players this week to just in an absolute street fight against Wheaton. And if Central is going to have the horses to go another tough physical 60 minutes with that relatively fresh Whitewater team. Early weather report for Whitewater, Wisconsin on Saturday, 39 degrees, the high, 29 the low, very low chance of precipitation basically all week, maybe a little bit of wind, but not entirely inhospitable to passing perhaps in Whitewater on Saturday. Moving on to the top right, we have uh, RPI winning the New York, New England pod by outlasting Cortland 21 to 14. We mentioned earlier Dylan Burnett and George Marinopoulos. But a couple of key moments in uh, in the game by the engineer defense as well. In a 7-7 game on Cortland's opening third quarter drive, C.J. Lyons knocked the ball loose from Derek Cruz, who was streaking up the field near the red zone. RPI recovered that fumble to prevent a good Cortland scoring chance, one of the few good scoring chances that Cortland had in the game. Yeah, defense forced three second-half turnovers, including that one, uh, as well as the pick in the closing seconds, which you heard way back in the open. Uh, that came on the next play after Cortland had recovered the onside kick and seemed to have momentum on its side with a minute 40 left in the game. Meanwhile, Breeze Sagala, perhaps a bit of surprise in the postgame news conference after Frank Rossi asked him if he was planning to reconsider, stay, and use his final year of eligibility. It's been a hell of a season, um, and I'm going to hang up my cleats with the guys that I came in with. And I'm proud of how this went for me. Damn, tough question. Uh, you know, I'm just... Take your time. Take your time. You know, I'm going to hang up the cleats because this is how I want to hang them up, man. We, these are the guys I came in with. And, I mean, what a year, right? What a year. Like, if you would have told me this four years ago, I wouldn't have believed you. So, I mean, it was a crazy run. And, I mean, this is it for me. There's some really good guys behind me. You'll see. 
And Corwin's got a long way to go. Corwin's going to be here for a long time and continue to be one of the biggest and beasts of the East. Right, you get lots of emotional moments like this uh, this time of year. I mean, you heard another one. I don't know, 15 minutes ago or so in this very podcast. Seniors realizing their football career is over. Underclassmen and coaches knowing they will never have this group together again, not in the same way. Lots of people now have to make extra decisions because there's a lot of extra eligibility floating around from that COVID season. Yeah, it's not really an easy or automatic decision to stay in school for another year. Yes, college football is fleeting and the chances to play are extremely limited, but there is definitely sacrifice involved to staying. We heard Ralph Isernia talk about Marinopoulos' options and the opportunities that he deferred to play this year. Um, And these are definitely complex decisions, and every student-athlete will hopefully do what's best for them and their futures. And it was North Central in the other part of this bracket, winning 34-20 in a highly anticipated game in the upper right-hand bracket. This is the champs of the CCIW against the WIAC runner-up. The Cardinals didn't seem to miss a beat after getting an unexpected week off in the first round. They came out firing on all cylinders, taking a 20 to nothing lead. Lacrosse then put up three consecutive scores, cutting that lead to 20 to 13. But Ethan Greenfield the game ball. and Terrence Hill put the game away as the Cardinals ran for 291 yards on the afternoon. Lacrosse did have three consecutive scores, but a pair of field goals in those three. And field goals are just not going to beat a team that scores close to 60 points per game. Um, we were watching to see if North Central would be rusty after that unintentional bye week. And I think the answer was mostly no. They jumped out to a 20 to zero lead, but there were some spots throughout the game where they were just a little bit off. Luke Landon missed a couple of throws to open receivers. There were a couple of drops out there by some of North Central's guys that are usually pretty sure handed. If North Central is knocking off the rust against this UW lacrosse team and sort of grinding their way through a two touchdown uh, lead, That's pretty bad news for the rest of the field. A C or B game from just about anybody else probably isn't good enough to beat lacrosse, but North Central did just that by two touchdowns, and it seems like there's room for improvement. So looking ahead at this quarterfinal between RPI and North Central, like North Central's trip to the national quarterfinals in 2019, you got a team coming from out of the East region to come in and uh, also, I mean, a team that's very well known for its defense like Delaware Valley was in 2019. It is. And RPI's recipe for success this season has been to keep the clock running, find a way to score 21 points, and then have the defense get some stops and a timely turnover, too. I'm not really sure 21 is going to be enough this week for the engineers against the Cardinals' dynamic offense. I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying that RPI will be the biggest underdog on the schedule in the quarterfinals. I'll be interested to see if RPI will be able to dictate the pace of the game the way that they have this weekend and some of their other important Liberty league games, or if North central will be able to build an early double digit lead like they did against the cross. And if they get out to a lead on, on RPI going to be tough for that offense in the way that they, that they have played to come back. I think we move on to the bottom right-hand bracket where we see Mount union getting a bit of a challenge, which maybe wasn't too unexpected. And then we see Muhlenberg just completely shutting down Delaware Valley. Yeah, Mount Union's first eight plays in this game were pass attempts, and they went two for six with a sack and a safety. Um, Then Mount Union, they started to run the ball a little bit. DeAndre Parker was effective on that third drive for Mount Union, and then Wayne Ruby Jr. gets loose on a crossing route, and he outruns the Hopkins secondary for a touchdown. Mount Union has skewed more pass heavy this year than we're used to seeing from them, but it wasn't until they really established some ground game that they were able to get their offense going. 
Yeah, you had to know it was not going to work out well for Johns Hopkins after settling for two field goals on deep penetrations into Mount Union territory. We talked last week about how key it was for Linfield to follow up its safety against Redlands with a touchdown after that free kick. You know, you get nine points basically on what is essentially one possession. Well, so Mount Union called for holding in the end zone. They put the two points on the board for that safety for the Blue Jays. The Hopkins follows with a 38-yard field goal. Mount Union responds with a 51-yard touchdown from Braxton Plunk to Ruby. They take the lead 7-5. Later, Johns Hopkins got down to first and goal from the four. Then they got pushed back, had to settle for a 25-yard field goal, and they took an 8-7 to lead. But that's way too many points to leave on the field against any elite team. It is. And, you know, that, that, that first and four that ends up being a field goal is one that really hurts them as well. You know, we've also talked on the podcast about Josh Petroselli's usage, usage rate and how we're contrasting that to the emergence of DeAndre Parker as, as maybe a preferred option for Mount Union. But when it was winning time in a tight game against Ohio Northern, Petroselli got the call. And here again in the second round, in a pretty tight game, um, the uh, Mount Union called on their senior to put the game away. Five of Mount Union's first six plays to start the fourth quarter were Petroselli runs, including a two-yard touchdown that put the, the Purple Raiders up by 17. Later in the quarter, after a turnover on downs deep in Hopkins territory, Petroselli again, he gets two carries that are needed to go 12 yards or so to get that final score, uh, the final points for Mount Union. Whether Petroselli is the number one back at Mount Union or not, it is pretty clear that his reduced reps throughout the regular season has him fresh for this playoff run. And when the going gets tough, he's the guy that Mount Union wants carrying the ball. Other second round game in this part of the bracket was all defense. Muhlenberg completely shutting down Delaware Valley in a 14-0 win. I mean, in the end, right, this is not that surprising given DelVal's struggles at times on offense this year. Linebacker Spencer Kieran and defensive end Quentin Ogren talked about the Mules' defensive game plan and its success in their postgame news conference. Uh, yeah, I think just week in and week out, our game plan is always to stop the run and try and make a team uh, one-dimensional. I thought we did a good job of that. And then creating turnovers always helps, too. Whenever we can flip the field and give our offense the ball in better position, that helps the defense, too. And this week, we were really harping on the D-line and like the defensive front to get pressure on the quarterback. We wanted to help our secondary out. We felt like we kind of left them hanging dry week one of the playoffs. So it was our job all week to just get pressure and help hit the quarterback as much as we can. Muhlenberg is the other team left in the draw that has not given up an offensive touchdown. Uh, the Mules out-Delvald Delval. They sacked Daquan Bohannon nine times in the game. Nine times. Delaware Valley did get into the red zone three times in this game, but they were turned away each time by a Muhlenberg defense that has sort of rediscovered some of their 2019 semifinal quality. Yeah, and as we look ahead to this game between Muhlenberg and Mountain Union, I'm kind of wondering how to process it, what to make of it. I mean, Johns Hopkins seemed to compete in this game despite Ryan Stevens just really not looking that good out there, a quarterback. Uh, for the Blue Jays. Michael Natkowski, almost certainly a better quarterback. Uh, the Muhlenberg defense will need to do a lot of work against the Mountain Union offense, and I expect lower scoring than 45-35, but I'm not sure it will be any closer for this week's Centennial Conference representative in Alliance, Ohio. Yeah, you can do a little comparative score situation here with Mount Union and Muhlenberg against Johns Hopkins. Muhlenberg defeated Johns Hopkins 21-6 earlier in the season. 45 to 35, obviously, this week against Mount Union for Johns Hopkins. You know, Michael Natkowski, he's been a four-year starter there and has played a ton of games. Um, so a little more experience than Ryan Stevens. He's been a semifinalist in 2019. So, you know, played against 
uh, North Central. That did not go well for Muhlenberg in 2019. But he's been there. He's been in that spot. And fifth-year senior quarterbacks are having a pretty pretty good playoff. And who knows? You know, Natkowski, he's had a knack for making the plays in the games where he really needed to. Like, they, he's really played well after the Ursinus game. Michael Natkowski did play at Alliance Ohio in 2018, and I'm not going to say anything else about the rest of it because, well, okay, that was 6 of 27 passing for 89 yards and a touchdown and three interceptions. Admittedly, three years ago, I'm sure he's like 24 now, right? Also not, not exactly the same Mount Union defense that was there in 2018 either. And for that matter, Josh Petroselli that day, 35 carries for 219 yards and uh, three touchdowns. It all com- it all circles back around. We will rise, we will rise, we will rise. We're also circling back around to teams on the rise. If you haven't listened to this podcast since 264, you know Podcast 264. I like to think of that as the one with the bedtime story. Anyway, Teams on the Rise makes a comeback this week as a category because I think we should talk about teams who have played their way into a better postseason ranking. Obviously, seven very important games left to be played in this season, but it seems likely that a handful of teams have improved on their standing in the final regular season poll. For me, one of those is Linfield. I've had them number six on my ballot for quite some time, a few spots ahead of St. John's, and now I expect others will likely join me, expect to see them higher then number seven on the final ballot. Greg, how about, uh, what's your take? What's your team on the rise? For me, Central entered the tournament at number 10 on my ballot. They had clearly been posting elite offensive numbers throughout the regular season, but after hanging 61 on Bethel in the first round and knocking off my preseason Stag Bowl favorite in round two, the Dutch are going to end up in the top six, maybe higher, depending on how this weekend goes. They're certainly going to be higher than 10. Your categories have become tiresome. Now's the time on Sprockets where we dance. That was the time in the podcast when we go to Twitter. We go to Twitter. You come at us with your takes. That's cool. We don't mind your takes. We really like your questions here for this podcast. And this one comes from I Don't Know Why I'm Here, who is at Talking Too Much 219. All of those twos are numerals. If you're looking for this tweet, I say these things so you can go look up. These are actual tweets sent actually at us. And the question is. Do you think there are a greater number of high-caliber teams this year due to the experience that an extra year of eligibility, COVID, allowed programs? Seems like there's seven teams left capable of winning it all, and St. John's maybe was an eighth, whereas there were two to three in years past. I will definitely say, or def- certainly agree there are a greater number of high-caliber teams this year. I think that the, the COVID experience has something to do with it. I mean, there's obviously a lot of super seniors. Wheaton had a ton of super seniors. Ralph Isernia talked about, I think, 15 super seniors on his team's, uh, on his squad. I think at some point that has to all balance out, but it certainly helps. It has to help, right? It has to help. It does, but I think we were seeing more teams sort of catch up to the Purple Powers before COVID. You know, North Central broke through and won a national championship in 2019. Wheaton was in a, uh, Wheaton was in a quarterfinal that year. St. John's had sort of come back from several years of not being national title contenders to be in the semifinal in 2019. So I I think we were starting to see more teams sort of populate that top tier prior to COVID. I think the level of play this year has been very good because of the number of super seniors that we are seeing uh, play. 
this is something that through around the nation and all of our other features columns throughout the year that has been sort of a theme for a lot of things talking about super seniors in the fifth year and all of that we were curious to see if teams were going to how teams were going to play like the teams that didn't play for 650 days and all of that that we're talking about and it turns out pretty well i think the level of play across the board has been very good um covid helps those you know covid doesn't help those teams the extra year of eligibility because of the covid pandemic has helped those teams that are competing for national championships this uh coming up this weekend and throughout this tournament but they've also helped everybody else the same way so yeah i think the, the you know the the super seniors raising the level of play for everybody but also you know we're getting more teams that are capable of competing for that national championship if you go back to podcast 264 scroll forward to about two minutes and 55 seconds that is literally what the bedtime story is about all of these teams coming up to challenge in this case we're talking about challenging mountain union because podcast 264 is the one the one with the second round shocker i think was the actual title i still think of it as the one with the bedtime story other question matt zepp at mj zepp z-e-p-p do you feel there's more parity in D3 this year as opposed to past years? Half of this week's games were one score contests. Two more were within two scores. And it feels like all eight teams have a legitimate shot to win next week. I think like this is almost the answer to the previous question, right? And it kind of goes to exactly what you were talking about. Greg. It is. It, yeah, it is. And I think that, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week also where because you have more teams that are so that are good parity. I mean, it's kind of relative. We're talking about, five or six or seven teams having a chance to win a championship instead of just two or three. But we saw this week when you get more teams that are title legitimate title contenders, they start playing each other earlier in the tournament. Like you saw Linfield and St. John's central and Wheaton North central and lacrosse in the second round in years past, maybe those caliber of matchups, maybe you don't see until the quarterfinal round. So now, parity across Division Three, we have a few more teams that I think are legitimate contenders. Division Three is also still very, very big, and we've seen some other instances in these playoffs where there's still a pretty big gap between tiers of the division: Whitewater, Greenville, Whitewater, DePaul. You know, some of those, some of those scores, and some of the scores we saw in the in the first round as well. So, some more parity at the top, a few more teams in it, maybe not in a place where, say, the top fifty can beat each other up on any given Saturday. I just pulled up the 2019 bracket for a little refresher. Mary Harden Baylor won by 36 in the second round. Whitewater was a two score game. Wheaton won by 36 points. St. John's won by 29. Uh, Salisbury won by 21. Muhlenberg won by 42. Uh, the North Central, of course, uh, beating Mount Union 59-52 and then Delaware Valley 45-10. to over Wesley. It, if nothing else, we can certainly say there were a lot more good games in the second round of 2021 than there were in 2019. Thanks to both of you guys for your questions. Those are really good questions. Those are the kind of questions we like to answer on the podcast. People can do that by tweeting at us on Sunday afternoons. You know how to tweet. I assume I see you tweet all the time. Tweet us your questions. All right, so we did really well, you and I specifically, Greg, in the first round. We were 16 out of 16. How did we do in round two? And I'll just hang up and listen. Yeah, this is the part that I think Keith McMillan calls uh, accountability. Um, you know, the, the, the panel did pretty well again this week as a consensus, having pretty good predictions for the types of games we were going to see. 
couple of spots where we weren't so good. Wheaton and Central didn't get quite as pointy as we thought it might. And five of six of us also picked Wheaton to win. Uh, nice job by tips. And again, uh, five of six of us also picked Cortland to win. Also, again, Ryan Tips picked up a point on the field. For the round, Ryan Tips got seven out of the eight quarter uh, second round games correct. He only missed on St. John's. Frank picked up six of eight games uh, this weekend, missing just on Wheaton and Cortland. Keith, Pat, Adam, and Greg, we all we all got five out of eight. Uh, looks like we all missed Wheaton. We all missed Cortland. And Keith missed DelVal. Pat missed DelVal. Adam missed on St. John's. And I missed on Hopkins. I took the flyer there. I, and it was oh, I was looking so good for a half or so. <laughs> Totals through two rounds. Ryan has made up the ground and taken the lead. He's got 22 correct picks so far. Pat and Greg were hanging in there at 21. Keith and Frank, 20 correct picks. And Adam, 18 correct picks. With just seven games to play, Adam is going to need to be really good. Well, I mean, Adam's got a new wife and a newborn, and um, uh, maybe he's a little bit distracted. I can uh, Maybe lack of sleep has something to do with that. All I can think is that as I look back on my DelVal pick, I picked DelVal to win 17-15. I almost think I must have accidentally reversed that. DelVal, a field goal, I don't know what I was thinking. DelVal field goal has been an adventure this year. Kicking game, not a strength for the Aggies. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, maybe some other ways to get to 17. Some non-standard ways. A couple of safeties. I don't know. Yeah, a, a touchdown and five safeties. Defensive two-point conversion. I don't know. And this was Around the Nation podcast number 296, released on November 29th of 2021. I don't know. Was there more to say there? Thanks for listening and keep an eye out for our continuing coverage throughout the rest of the postseason. You can support production of this podcast and the D3Sports.com family of websites by visiting patreon.com slash D3Sports. But even if you can't afford to support us financially, I mean, you can help us out by telling a friend, tell a classmate, tell a fellow alumnus of your favorite school about this show. And you can rate and review us in all the ways that people rate and review podcasts. There's lots of stuff coming up this week. There's Gallardi Trophy voting right now on the front page of D3Football.com. Cast your fan ballot. If you have a device that you haven't voted from, go vote from that device. Um, this is how the world works, right? Go find yourself a device that you haven't voted this uh, voted from. 15 semifinalists await your vote. And Greg, they await our vote too. We have to rank them from top to bottom, one to 15. And every time that the... the uh, J Club people put more people on the ballot. I'm like, I got to keep ranking these people. I think it's just the top three this year, Pat. Ha, see? I should read the instructions. Only three? All right. Well, uh, we have a message board devoted to Division Three Sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering a post at d3boards.com. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook, and you can reach us to talk more about uh, Division Three Football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Greg, is at Wally Wabash. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Thanks also to uh, a little extra contribution of content from Frank Rossi and frankly, all of the sports information directors who hosted games this weekend and put your post-game news conferences out there on the web for people to watch. Super helpful. We drew obviously quite a bit from that in order to put this podcast together. 
Our theme music is Power 2 by DJ Mentos. We use more of his tracks as well. You can find them at DJMentos.com as well as on Spotify. Thanks to Ralph Isernia. Thanks to Kevin Beatty, the Sports Information Director at RPI. Thanks to Greg Thomas, my co-host. And thanks to the originator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, Keith McMillan. Something we didn't talk about. I just realized Central had to score 20 points in that fourth quarter to win. And that fourth quarter, what I just incredible plays after plays. The touchdown catch, the first touchdown catch for Wheaton, Adam Torini, that was a great play and a great pass. The one Terrell Brown caught with 241 to go was one of the best catches I've seen this year. And then I mean, come for for the Terrell Brown catch. Stay for the 13 play, Blaine Hawkins drive, which is going to get, like, if in central lore, that thing's going to get a proper name. Thank you. Thank you so much, everybody.